Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this Dando Forum public lecture. We are being hosted by the LSE Ideas Foreign Policy Think Tank here at the LSE. Uh, the Dando Forum is a collaboration between the LSE, the Hattie School uh, of Governance in Berlin, and Stiftung Mercator. And, and we are very pleased also to welcome uh, Professor Vlad Zubok, who is in the audience who is running the working group on Russia, Ukraine, and EU for the Donda Forum, who has very kindly organized tonight's lecture. My name is Robert Faulkner. I'm the academic director of the Donda Forum here at the LSE. And uh, just briefly to explain the background to the forum itself, many of you, I'm sure, have been to previous events that we've organized. The forum is here to honor the legacy of uh, Lord Ralph Dandorf, one of the 20th century's greatest sociologists, liberal thinker. He was a uh, LSE director, the first, hopefully not the last, German director at the LSE, and he was, of course, a passionate European. He was a European who also liked to ask critical questions about the path that European integration had taken. And so in that spirit, the Donda Forum exists to debate Europe, but with a critical edge, and that is what we are here for. We are very grateful that you've all come to join us in this effort. We are very honored to welcome our guest speaker tonight, our uh, high-profile speaker, Ambassador Pierre Vimont, who is, of course, as you all know, a veteran diplomat and currently works as a senior associate at Carnegie Europe in Brussels. Until last year, he was the first executive secretary general of the European External Action Service, and in that role, he played a key role setting up the European Union's diplomatic service uh, under Cathy Ashton's <laughs> leadership. He has more than 30 years, 38 years of experience in French diplomacy. He served as ambassador to the United States, 2007 to 2010. He was the ambassador to the European Union for France, 1999 to 2002. And he was chief of staff for three French foreign ministers. Ambassador Vimont is a much sought-after advisor and diplomat, still in active service, he was only recently appointed by EU President Donald Tusk to serve as personal envoy for the Valletta Conference between the EU and uh, developing countries. And he has just been an announced as the special envoy for France at the Peace Summit Initiative for Israel and Palestine. Today's topic follows in a line of events that we have held to focus on Europe's security crisis on its borders. The topic of the lecture will be Europe and the return of geopolitics. The lecture will address the crisis in Ukraine and what can be done about it and why the European Union perhaps now faces the dreaded return of geopolitics, something that we thought we had eradicated. Ambassador, we're very grateful that you're here. May I invite you to take uh, the floor? Uh, we have a slight time constraint because due to uh, your um, you need to be back on the continent tonight. We need to finish somewhat earlier tonight. So could I invite you all, when I ask you later on, to join me in the Q&A session to ask precisely formulated short questions. But I will explain that a little bit later. Ambassador, uh, please, uh, your remarks are most sought after. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Vimont. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert, for uh, your very kind words. Uh, um, and sorry uh, to push you uh, yeah, and to put you under pressure because of my time schedule. But um, but that, that forces me to be uh, rather short in my presentation, not to take too much of your time, um, which is, I think, a very good thing. And then uh, you can ask all the questions you wish, and I would be very happy. Uh, to try to to answer them, I, I would like to to thank um, the LSE and the uh, Dahendorf lectures for inviting me. It's a it's a great honor and a great pleasure to be here in LSE. Um, as you know, I'm a retired diplomat um, who can speak his mind freely, and this is what I intend to do uh, this evening. I will. Um, uh, not abuse of that uh, possibility, but still, I think it's a good opportunity to try to look back at what we tried to do with uh, with Ukraine, 
and uh, if not being able to um, answer uh, all the difficult questions that are there on the table, at least to try to uh, uh, put uh, some genuine ones there on the table. Because I think what has been quite interesting with the, uh, with the Ukrainian crisis is that we have been, to some extent, uh, hinting at some very important issues, um, just like our neighborhood policy, our relationship with uh, Russia, um, this uh, very controversial confrontation between our interests and our values, and I will talk more about this in a second. And I think we, um, as quite often with the European Union, went into all these debates someone um, stuck with our processes, and this is really what I would like to, to talk to you about, how much the whole European system is very much process-led and how much sometimes it's missing precisely the kind of geopolitical, should we call it vision, should we call it uh, something less ambitious. Anyway, the geopolitical dimension is quite often missing. Up to a point where I think you could say that, um, you know, it's... Um, uh, to talk about EU and geopolitics, it's a little bit like an oxymoron, you know, bittersweet and things like that, a contradiction in terms to some extent, and I would like maybe to go a little bit further in, in, into this. And before, just before starting, I would like to apologize, as some of you may have understood, I'm French, nobody's perfect, uh, so I apologize for my poor English, but I'll try to uh, overcome this um, this hurdle in, in, in the best way possible. I would really like to make three major um, uh, observations about this issue related to uh, Ukraine and, and Russia, about this issue on uh, EU, um, EU and the return of, uh, of geopolitics. Um, the first one is a very simple one, but I think one we need to understand if we want to be able to move forward in, in this discussion. It is that... Um, Geopolitics, right from the beginning, has been at the heart of what I think is um, a major uh, structural um, element of the way we have built up the European Union. In fact, uh, if you look at our institutions, if you look at our treaties, uh, there has been, right from the start, with the founding fathers already there at the beginning, a totally new approach to foreign policy, um, which was quite different from what um, nations and European nations were doing. Never forget that we built the European Union and we started with the Treaty on Rome on the, the um, ruins of the Second World War, where a lot of those founding fathers and those who supported this idea of the European Union were absolutely convinced that the reasons for these um, two or three wars that France fought um, against Germany were the result of precisely a, a, a Westphalian approach about politics, realpolitik, as we say, the politics of the nations totally committed to their own interests, national interests, and that we should replace that by something totally different, which was more of the Wilsonian approach of the, um, if you remember, of the uh, society of, the, of, of nations and, and um, this idea that values and principle should inspire from there on our external action. And the reality is that Europe has been built uh, on these two pillars that have been facing each other. On one side, the Commission, as the, um, the um, guardian of this new spirit, talking uh, about um, values, principles, um, uh, talking about dealing with some sort of soft power, whereas the member states on their side were moving on uh, with their traditional approach um, of what, as I was saying earlier on, could look like a more real politics, even to some extent cynicism too, uh, seen from the, uh, the commission and the commission side. And to that you should add a second element which has even made things even more complicated, is that among member states, as we went on enlarging the European Union, you had two different types of member states, those that were still very much committed to the idea of Europe acting as, um, as a major partner in the international community and therefore having this geopolitical approach, 
and others who thought that um, times have changed and therefore this European Union should be much more of a soft power dealing with uh, trade, humanitarian assistance, development assistance, um, uh, issues related to energy or transport, of things of that sort, and that the European Union had very little to do with the hard politics and the hard power of, um, of uh, crisis or management of uh, hot or high-intensity crisis. Um, this struggle between these two Europes have always been there right from the beginning and has um, um, brought, uh, as soon as we were facing a major difficulty, has brought um, strong and difficult divisions uh, among the member states. Um, three examples of this as, as we move along. Um, everything that has to deal with crisis management. Think about Syria. Think about uh, Libya today uh, or, or Yemen. Or think even uh, earlier on about other issues that we had to face uh, like the um, uh, uh, Russian intervention in Georgia in 2008. Immediately you had very um, impressive uh, division and, um, among member states on how we should deal with these kind of crises. The um, some of the member states, usually the largest one, France, Britain, Germany, are quite ready to move in and to try to do something because they think they have a responsibility in, in, in trying to solve these crises. And it's about, um, at that time, being the rotating president of the European Union, um, Nicolas Sarkozy jumping into his train and running to uh, Georgia and to Moscow to try to solve the, the Georgian um, issue. Um, you could immediately sense from many of our partners in the European Union that they were very reluctant in that kind of approach and they were not totally sure that we should go along with this. Even if we manage at the end to strike a deal, whatever we may think about that deal, there was still some uh, apprehension and I would say some frustration among some of the member states about the way we acted at the time. But you could go and give other examples of, of this division. It's about security and the simple idea about whether the European Union should be some sort of, I would say, middle rank, uh, uh, hard power. In other words, to have the capacity to make uh, military intervention here and there in Africa or elsewhere or whether we should uh, uh, limit ourselves to a role mostly in terms of cooperation and assistance in the security sector. And here again, you can witness this happening every day. When France decides to intervene in Mali against the uh, radical Muslim groups or in uh, the, the Central African Republic, it very much goes on its own, first of all, because it has its military capacity to do that, but also because the member states and most of them are rather reluctant to move into something like that. I know of some ministers who have bluntly said that this was not a role for the European Union. And therefore, when you're discussing about Europe as a geopolitical actor, you bring immediately this question of what does it mean and how far are we ready to go? And you have to be aware that there are deep divisions among member states, not now, let me give you another example of these deep division. It's when the Lisbon Treaty set up precisely the European External Action Service. Some of the member states, usually the, the usual suspect, I would say, have seen this service as, um, as a sort of uh, uh, European diplomatic service, a full-fledged European diplomatic service, um, which should have... Uh, uh, a full-fledged uh, diplomatic network around the world, uh, build up uh, departments in, uh, and on, uh, for each of uh, the different issues we have to face. In other words, a sort of foreign office in, in Brussels. And others who uh, right from the beginning said that this should not be the role of the European Union. We didn't need um, a full-fledged um, diplomatic service, but rather something more simple, more light, like a policy planning staff um, uh, uh, and a secretariat mostly, and that was quite enough for what Europe should do. 
So when you ask yourself the question about should Europe be a geopolitical actor, you have to be aware that there are deep divisions inside the member states, among the member states, and between the different institutions, the Council and the Commission, about the role, precise role, of, the, of, of Europe on the world stage. And of course, when you start with this kind of structural difference and, and deep division, one must not be totally surprised that we are not always up to par with uh, the um, um, crisis that we're facing and why quite often uh, we can be worried about the absence of Europe and the fact that Europe is not there. Um, I think this is important to keep online. Now, coming to Ukraine and um, Russia. There, I think, and that will be my second observation, you see a very good example, precisely, of the kind of uh, uh, crisis happening where Europe uh, has great difficulty in shaping exactly the role it should play. I think three um, issues need to be underlined as we, uh, as we move along in trying to understand how um, this Ukrainian crisis was a perfect illustration of the shortcomings of, of Europe. The first one is that on this whole issue, right from the beginning, we hadn't really uh, thought about what was our objective with regard to, to Ukraine and to even to some extent to the whole region. Think about the two initiatives that we introduced and the processes we launched with regard to Ukraine. The first one, more global one, was the Eastern Partnership that uh, was launched uh, around 2007-2008, mostly under the influence of uh, two uh, foreign ministers from Sweden and from Poland, Carl uh, Bildt and Radek Sikorsky. If you talk to these two uh, personalities, and very strong personalities, they will first of all explain to you that this whole idea about launching Eastern Partnership was a way of counterbalancing what um, the French and others had done on the other side with Southern Mediterranean. This was the time, you may remember, when Nicolas Sarkozy launched the Union for Mediterranean, and a lot of... Um, our uh, European partners thought that this would really unbalance uh, the, um, uh, the, um, the interest of Europe towards all parts of its neighborhood. Southern neighborhood, in their opinion, would, would get the most important attention and therefore something needed to be done on the eastern side of the European neighborhood. Uh, but having said that, in fact, there was no real objective about what we wanted to do with the Eastern Partnership, either about, um, uh, about Ukraine and the final goal about Ukraine. Should it become a member of the European Union? Should it start an accession process? We left this question aside because it was very controversial and we thought it was better not to talk about it and not much thinking also about how we wanted to relate with Russia on this whole issue of our new relationship with, uh, with Ukraine. The main idea, I remember, I think it was uh, um, uh, President Prodi who came out with this idea that uh, Eastern Partnership was everything but the treaty. It's uh, everything except being a member. Uh, and with this, uh, we went ahead. The second initiative was the famous association agreement, which is, as you may know, is all about setting a sort of institutional framework for a lot of meetings at all levels, um, create and setting up a whole lot of cooperation in all possible fields, and more important, and I would say the central piece of it all, is what we call a deep and comprehensive free trade um, agreement, which is, to put it in simple term, asking each and every one of the countries that are ready to sign these DCFTA uh, to take on board all the acquis communautaire. In other words, you take on board all the norms and the standards of, of Europe. You have all the constraints of a member uh, without being a member, which is not always a very good deal for many of these. Um, these were the two initiatives without any clear idea about what we wanted to do with this and what kind of uh, strategy we wanted to have, not only with, uh, with uh, Georgia, by the way, with, um, with um, Ukraine, by the way, but with the other partners inside the Eastern Partnership, which were, as you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, 
Moldova, Belarus, Georgia, a whole bunch of countries who, by the way, looked all like the very near neighbors of Russia and who um, could give the impression that through this uh, Eastern partnership, we were creating some sort of encirclement of uh, Russia, which didn't help very much in our relation with that country as we, um, as we, were, uh, we went ahead. That's for the absence of real goal and real strategy. But the, the second point, which has been quite interesting, is the, we didn't know very well as we went on how to manage the growing crisis that was looming in the horizon. As we went ahead and as uh, tension grew up because of our negotiation with, uh, with Ukraine, we handled this whole tension in the usual way uh, that the Europeans do, which was moving ahead with the process of negotiating an association agreement, looking at some issues that were important ones, of course, with regard to Ukraine, were human rights issues, you know, during many months uh, before we came into the, the hottest element of this uh, uh, crisis, namely the Maidan revolution, we were uh, obsessed with the whole issue of Mrs. Yulia Timoshenko being put in prison and calling on the Ukrainian government to release her immediately. And we had meetings time and again with Ukraine um, Parliament, European Parliament delegations going there, while at this mem the same moment was um, we could see that there was an upcoming um, uh, a crisis looming in the horizon, and we were very much stuck on this kind of um, of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of process. Uh, at the same time, with regard to Russia, we didn't pay much attention to what they were telling us about the fact that um, they were very unhappy with this negotiation on the association agreement because they thought that these were undermining their own interests. They were talking time again about um, the um, Eurasian Economic Union and how they could build some relationship with the um, Europe, uh, European Union. And we were just telling them that we were going ahead with our own process of association agreement negotiation, that there was some sort of contradiction where the, um, with, uh, uh, between us and this Eurasian Union and that we couldn't do anything about this. In other words, we were moving into a minefield that was there more and more obviously, and um, we were just moving on without much of a political instinct and a political understanding of what was going on. This is not to say that um, we should uh, not blame Russia for what happened afterwards. I think there is a lot to say about this. But I still think that we could have handled this in maybe a better way if only uh, we would have taken on board some of the uh, advice that was given to us and some of the events that were going on. Uh, remember, in the summer of 2013 is the moment when Armenia, which was also negotiating an association agreement with Europe, decided to give up. And they gave up, of course, under the pressure of Russia, and we didn't pay much notice to that. Um, whereas this was a warning call that we should have very much taken on board. It's true that we were totally obsessed by Syria at the time. During that summer, we had the whole incident of the chemical weapons, and you remember all the um, pressure and tension that grew out of this, um, of this major um, difficulty. Uh, but still, it's quite interesting to see how we were taken somewhat by surprise when finally President Yanukovych decided not to sign the, um, the association agreement and the whole history of the Maidan revolution started to unfold. Third point, and I would like to insist on that, as I said before, on this issue we were pretty much divided. And we were pretty much divided because between the member states, uh, because of course at the heart of um, this whole issue about Ukraine uh, lie the very important challenge of what we wanted to do in this part of Europe about the sphere of influence of Europe on the European Union on one side, Russia on the other side, about what political space we wanted to leave to Russia in this part of the continent, which to some extent amounts to the whole question of the kind of uh, economic union and security architecture we wanted to have with the European continent. 
And the truth is that we never wanted to get involved into this, and that the European member states, knowing very well that they would be pretty much divided on this issue, preferred not to have a debate and uh, leave this aside, rather to um, take um, somewhat boldly on uh, this whole issue. And you have seen how, therefore, our relationship with Russia slowly deteriorated during these 10 years starting around 2001, in fact, starting at the time of 9-11. 9-11 is the moment, if we remember that, it's always a bit surprising. This is the moment when the first President Putin, in his first mandate, um, uh, said um, very bluntly after 9-11 that he was ready to support whatever decision would be taken by the Western world against terrorists, and he was very much on our, on our side. And as you go on from there on, you see a constant deterioration of our relationship with Russia without, in fact, on our side, neither maybe on the American side, any attempt to try to reach out and discuss uh, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, 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 new order we're looking for in, in Europe. Once again, this is not to... Um, in any way uh, to avoid blaming uh, the uh, Russians for what happened afterwards in Georgia in 2008, as I was mentioning earlier on, or in uh, Crimea and in the eastern Ukraine in 2014. But I think we have to understand that to a large extent we went into these crises without any real strategy and without any real idea of really what we were looking for. Where can we go from there on? And this is um, my third and last comment I wanted to say about this. Uh, and maybe just to add that, of course, we could more or less apply the same kind of um, uh, narrative with regard to the southern neighborhood, um, because Europe, to some extent, is more or less playing the same game at the moment in, in, in the southern neighborhood without much of a geopolitical strategy there. It's a pity, and maybe this will improve as we go on, but still uh, we could have a lot to say about this. Uh, looking at what we can do now, and now that we are where we are with regard to Ukraine, I would like to um, underline two or, or, or three uh, comments there. The first one is the rather interesting division of labor that has slowly built out, uh, come out, sorry, of uh, the Ukrainian crisis. Um, and here again, it's quite striking to see that in certain way, it um, is totally in line with what I was saying uh, on the beginning about the kind of division of labor between those who are looking for a, a harsh, um, realistic geopolitical approach and those who are thinking more about uh, soft power um, commission-led um, foreign policy. Uh, if you look at the current situation at the moment with regard to the Ukrainian crisis, you see that on the political dimension of that crisis, namely the negotiations around the Minsk agreement, this has been left to two member states. It's, um, it's uh, Germany and France that are leading this, with no presence of the... Um, a European institution. It's, um, it's about um, sanctions taken against Russia uh, by the member states, uh, even under the coordination of the European Union, but it's still a decision, a unanimous decision by consensus, and therefore where the role of the member state is high. It's about the OSCE doing its monitoring um, uh, tasking, um, and the European Union is not there. Where is the European Union? It's um, with regard to Russia uh, dealing with uh, negotiation on trade and gas uh, and trying to find a way out of the present difficulty between Russia and uh, Ukraine. It is a, a rather interesting honest broker role, but still it's, um, it's, um, it's not really geopolitical politics. And then it's, of course, bringing economic assistance and financial assistance to Ukraine more to, amount, to an amount that is um, uh, um, totaling uh, more than 11 billion euros, which is high, which is important, but which is still also a role that has very little to do with uh, geopolitics. 
And how could you bridge the gap between these two? I guess it would be for the ES. But the ES, the External Action Service, is precisely having great difficulty in doing this job because member states are divided, because they don't think it's the role of the ES uh, to, um, to play a geopolitical role, and therefore they're staying out of this. Um, Secondly, um, if we look at this division of labor and try to look at the perspective and how do we, um, um, do we uh, rebuild something that could look like a, a strategy and a course of action that could be assumed as such and, and uh, clearly uh, being defined by member states. What we're witnessing at the moment among the member states is a very difficult and sharp debate about should we start again a dialogue with, uh, with Russia. We're pretty much divided on this, so we're moving very slowly, step by step, um, um, and uh, we are wondering uh, how far can we go. You know that the whole debate about sanctions will come back to, uh, to the forefront of, uh, of uh, the discussions in, in the Council, in, in Brussels, and that for many member states, um, this should be the time when we uh, decide to uh, get away from sanctions, whereas others think that as long as the Minsk agreements are not being totally and completely uh, um, implemented, uh, we should uh, stick with those sanctions. This is going to be a very difficult debate, and one can sense that the real issue behind that, once again, is the whole question of what kind of strategy do we want with the Russia. And that's because, for the reasons that I said earlier on, we can't find a, a real uh, agreement among us. We were going to live on with this uh, issue being open there and trying to fudge the issue to a large extent. And I don't know how this will come out in the end, but you have to watch this very carefully in, in the next uh, few months. With regard to Ukraine, you're a little bit in the same situation. What should we do with Ukraine? What kind of strategy should we have with Ukraine? Should we go for something like um, supporting Ukraine in its um, confrontation on the ground in Donbass and Lugansk, and therefore, um, as the Ukrainian authorities are asking the Europeans, give them support for some sort of um, military uh, peacekeeping force? Europeans so far have been very reluctant to do this. Or should we try to go for something totally different, which in my opinion is maybe the best course we could take, which is to commit Europe to a total support and complete and overwhelming support to the economic reforms of Ukraine. Because at the end of the day, to help Ukraine in its reform and to help Ukraine in succeeding in its economic reform is maybe at the end of the day the best answer we could give to Russia in showing that after all Ukraine can stand in, on its own feet and become uh, for the whole region um, uh, a beacon of prosperity and, um, and successful return to the free market um, economy. But uh, we are not there yet, and uh, here again we are pretty much divided with sometimes some of those half-baked policy where we tend to support a little bit but not as far as we should. We've put a lot of conditionalities in our uh, assistance, which to some extent is, is a good way of putting some leverage on our Ukrainian friends. But if you put too much conditionality at some point, uh, economic reform will not move ahead. And this is where you need to show the necessary flexibility. And if you want to know to show flexibility, you need to have a pretty good idea about the kind of political objectives you're, you're trying to, um, to reach. I think this is where we are at the moment, and I don't want to uh, take too much of your, of your time. Uh, this is where we are uh, at the moment, and we're still having on these debates and these discussions, because once again, we don't know exactly what we want. And to summarize in very simple terms, um, what do we want to do with Ukraine? Are we looking for a relationship with Ukraine that will be some special partnership? Or are we ready at some point to move into the start of an accession process with the Ukraine, uh, Ukra with Ukraine uh, being 
uh, accepted as um, the, having a vocation to become a member of the European Union in due course. Um, it may be too difficult, we may be too much divided on this, and that is uh, very understandable, but at least we should have this kind of discussion with us and with our partner, Ukraine, if we want to find the right road in moving ahead. And with regard to Russia, I think at some stage we also need to discuss with them the kind of relationship we want to have in the future. Are we going to go into this kind of confrontation for many years, or do we accept the fact that Russia, being a member of and um, being part of our continent, needs to have with us a new type of relationship, and that we need together to try to define the kind of um, European order we want to the, to the future? I think the real difficulty, and I'll end with this, I'm sorry for having been too long, is that it's very difficult for Europe that is rather weak at the moment to be self-assertive um, and um, have this kind of, um, um, uh, how do I put it, to have this kind of clarity in, uh, in its mind and, um, and the kind of uh, clear objective that it wants to follow. When you're dealing the way we have been dealing with the uh, migration issue for the last uh, year or so, when you have uh, um, a member state taking a very uh, autonomous attitude and, and being uh, less and less coordinated and showing less and less solidarity, to go for um, uh, a debate on the foreign policy strategy with uh, partners like Russia or like uh, Ukraine uh, becomes a, a real challenge. And I think at the moment, to be honest with you, I'm not so sure that we are able to face that challenge. My hope is as we move along, we're discussing at the moment in Europe the, the idea of a global strategy. Maybe we will stand up at last on our feet and be able to face that kind of debate we need to have. I've been quite too long. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Ambassador, thank you very much for those very critical remarks on the lack of clear purpose and strategy in, in Europe's relationship with the East, with Russia in particular. Today is, of course, after the tragic events in Brussels, a day when we do need to be reminded that Europe should not take security for granted. And I think it's an opportune, a pertinent day to reflect on the crisis in European strategy and foreign policy. Um, I also noted... Um, that you very kindly did not mention Great Britain nor Brexit in your talk, but perhaps, On purpose. <laughs> uh, perhaps um, your sense of tact and diplomacy uh, dictated that to you. I'm sure the audience will draw you into that debate. Um, uh, so we will very, be very keen to hear your views on, on what impact that is having on Europe. Good. I won't um, delay any further. We have only limited time. So can I invite the audience for questions? I will have to take questions in groups because I'm sure otherwise we won't get through. So I'm going to start here, down here. Uh, Professor Subak, please, and then I'll come through the center. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ambassador, for really, really uh, enlightening uh, talk. My uh, question is to you as a practitioner of diplomacy, uh, European diplomacy. Um, the way you spoke about Ukraine and Russia is sort of separated them. Here we should, what we should do with Ukraine. Here's what we should do with Russia. But if you look at the five points of Federica Mogherini on, you know, on, on next European strategy, you find four out of these being uh, linkages uh, between Russia's behavior and uh, 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 between Crimea and, 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 and lifting sanctions, between uh, Russian behavior in Minsk uh, uh, agreement in, in East Ukraine and sanctions. So there are lots of linkages there that, in my opinion, simply clog the whole process of, of dealing with this problem. And as a diplomat, are you in favor of decoupling these issues from each other? And what is our chances of decoupling one issue for another and going with them separately? For instance, it's, uh, it makes sense to turn to Putin's idea of an alliance against terrorism, but is it realistic to do so within the current European context when you know, everything that Europe can do towards Russia is linked uh, towards uh, the situation in Ukraine? Okay. Um, could you pass it through, please, yes? 
gentleman in the T-shirt, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador. My question uh, will focus on the first part of your remarks where you said what kind of power should Europe be in the global stage? And I would like to ask about Europe's involvement in Syria right now. You also mentioned that sometimes Europe does not know what it wants. Do you think that the involvement of European nations and the EU as a whole in conflicts in Syria and in Libya kind of have a direct correlation to the tragic events that have, we have seen in Europe in the past months and even today in Brussels? Do you think that this, the fact that Europe does not know exactly what it wants when it intervenes in such conflicts leads to uh, problems that we cannot anticipate, such as these terrorist attacks that we have seen over in the continent over the past few months and today? Okay. Could you pass it back there? Thank you. Um, thank you very much indeed. I've worked in European Commission funded projects in Ukraine. I doubt I will ever hear a more relevant and forceful and totally truthful presentation this year than the one you've given, Mr. Vimont. Um, it, it really is very, very bad. Um, do you see any signs of a uh, improvements perhaps at the operational level or at the strategic level which offer opportunities in the future. We, in other words, not there yet, but some signs of better working uh, with neighbours and indeed potential protagonists and indeed with the United States. Thank you. Okay. I think we'll have to take these three first, otherwise we'll get into a very long list. <laughs> um, on the linkage between Russia and Ukraine, uh, um, that's my personal view. I, I think it's very much linked uh, to, to a large extent, and the way we have, uh, with our sanctions, linked um, uh, Russia and uh, the situation in, um, in, um, in, uh, in Ukraine is uh, very obvious, and the, uh, the implementation of the Minsk Agreement. I, I tend personally to think that, uh, first of all, we should maybe decouple uh, the Crimea issue, annexation of Crimea, which is truly totally unacceptable because it's a, a simple violation of uh, international law um, on one side, and, um, uh, and we're talking here about annexation. And the Donbass and the Lugansk situation, which is also totally unacceptable, but it's a sort of a moving target there where we maybe have, um, have uh, more clout and more leverage at the end of the day in trying to, things, to make things move. By the way, watch carefully how uh, Germany and France are at the moment reacting to uh, the implementation of the Minsk Agreement. They're b becoming more and more critical of the position taken by the um, Ukrainian government, complaining that they are not fulfilling their part of the, um, of the, uh, of the agreement. I think um, personally that uh, uh, this is maybe not a fair account of, uh, of really the situation on the ground. And of course the Ukrainian uh, government is very unhappy with that type of criticism. Hence my personal opinion, and I may be totally wrong, but I think the only way to get out of this type of situation where we are at the moment is for the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian population for the time being to not be so obsessed, even if it's difficult, and I understand once again, not to be so obsessed about what's going on in Donbass and Lugansk, but for the time being to concentrate and focus all their energy on the economic reform of that country. I mean, the best, once again, the best answer uh, Ukraine can give to what has happened on its uh, borders is to make a success out of the economic reform they're going through. And the best contribution Europe can give is to support Ukraine in this um, economic reform. Um, because if they succeed, that will be a major blow uh, to Russian influence. You know, Belarus, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, they're all looking at, um, at Ukraine to see whether they will succeed in their reform or not. It may be very difficult. I know a lot of... Um, financial experts or private investors who are more or less saying that Ukraine is a lost cause. Um, I don't go along with that. I don't think there is fatality. But I think if we want Ukraine to be a success, we really need all of us, uh, Europeans, Americans and others, we need to be very supportive and to be behind them. I think personally that's, um, that's the, way, the way through. 
As regards the other possible dialogues with Russia, you talked about terrorism, one could talk about the Middle East and, and Syria and other places. I think here again, we need to be able at some stage to do some sort of, of, of decoupling because once again, we need to have uh, Russia involved. And by the way, this is something that was quite striking. You know, at, at the heat of the uh, Ukrainian crisis in 2014, we went on with Russia on board of the EU 3 plus 3 on the Iranian nuclear uh, negotiation. And they were very constructive, um, and uh, they were rather helpful. Um, you know, what would have happened if we'd had thrown them out of that discussion? We may not have an Iranian uh, nuclear deal. Now, I guess some would be very happy with the fact that we wouldn't have the deal, but I think it would be a mistake. So I think if you are a practitioner, and maybe I'm being too uh, realistic about this, but I think sometimes you have to be able, without giving up on your goals and your strategy and your objectives, you have sometimes to be able to be pragmatic and to know how to play with the different issues you are facing. This is sometimes what I think um, we should be more um, performing and more efficient at the European level with our foreign policy. Uh, the ability to take into account uh, the differences of situation, to play with one, one element against another, uh, and to keep always in mind what is the final goal we want to reach. I think our problem, I, I apologize for repeating this, is that we are, uh, haven't been able to do that at the moment. Second question on Syria, I will be very, very uh, um, simple about this. Um, uh, I think our main problem with the EU policy on Syria has been the deep division of the member states. We should never forget that. You know, foreign policy is still a matter for unanimity, for consensus. And when you don't have consensus, you can't do anything. So we have been stuck uh, on Syria um, because... Uh, the 28 member states didn't see eye to eye uh, about, uh, about how to deal with that crisis. We agreed in the first two or three years, you know, when it was all about uh, Bashar al-Assad must go. But as we went on and discovered that he hadn't gone and that maybe we should try to think about other ways of getting out of that terrible crisis, more than 270,000 casualties, uh, migrant um, refugees uh, moving out of the country in huge number, etc., etc., um, we, um, we um, started to have discussion among ourselves about whether we should adopt a more pragmatic approach, uh, a little bit along the lines of what the Americans have done. And we haven't been able to agree among the 28 of us. Hence, this feeling that Europe has been absent, which is not entirely true, because in terms of humanitarian assistance, we have been the first donor uh, still during all these, uh, all these years. But it's true that from a geopolitical um, dimension or perspective, We haven't been there, but we couldn't be there because uh, in spite of all her goodwill and her great talents and her great gifts, Mrs. Mogherini uh, didn't have any mandate from the member states to do anything in that, in that field. Um, last question about uh, should we maybe improve our act at the operational level with regard to Ukraine? Yes, I think we can. And I hope we will be able to do this as we go on and are slowly discovering all the intricacies of the Ukrainian situation, the difficulties of helping them to move ahead with their economic reform, think about the fight against corruption, think about the whole issue of decentralization, think about uh, how to improve uh, democracy, uh, think about the whole energy sector and what could be done there in terms of uh, energy efficiency. Uh, think about uh, the taxation reform, the fiscal policy, etc. Ukraine, I guess, thanks to the real efforts they have done and also to the advice given by the IMF, has more or less succeeded, or at least let's say they're moving in the right direction, with their stabilization policy. Um, beginning to see a little bit of growth. Uh, the fiscal situation has improved. Their public deficit, budget deficit is decreasing. 
trade is moving slowly back into uh, into the right position. They're less dependent on Russia, more on the European Union, more on their neighbors. There could be interesting regional cooperation with uh, Germany, Poland, uh, Romania, etc. All this is there. Um, what is more difficult is to be successful in the modernization, transformation of their economy moving from an economy mostly relying on steel and coal and uh, raw material in the agricultural sector to something that would look more, more like high-tech um, uh, agricultural industries uh, that would be more sophisticated. And they have all the assets to do that. You know, They have well-educated young people. They're already very good on electronic uh, components. Um, and so on and so forth. So it's about supporting them on these efforts and helping them to move in that direction. And to do this to some extent while um, forgetting for a while uh, their obsession with Russia. We all understand that and we can all agree with them. But you know, I'm sorry to make this, uh, uh, you should never compare historically. Um, but you know, if France at the time of um, uh, when Germany annexed the Alsace-Lorraine, uh, we would have been totally caught on this and only been thinking about this and not thinking about um, the way to relaunch our industry, which we did during all the end of the, the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, we would be still very, uh, very uh, uh, lagging behind. Uh, there is a moment when you have to decide about your priorities. And I think today the priority for Ukraine is its economy, uh, uh, I think. Okay, could I have another show of hands, please? I'll, I'll come back to you, Jen. So let's start over there, please. Yes, please. Um, thank you very much. Um, I just was wondering on your assessment on how the External Action Service has developed and maybe sort of uh, contrasting it with your experience on a national level and sort of the differences and maybe is it... Is that where maybe your experience of, whereas on the national level it's quite straightforward what your mandate is, whereas on the EU level um, it's a lot more complicated? Is that perhaps where that came in? And if I could very quickly ask, what, what do you think um, Brexit would mean for foreign affairs? I'll just throw that in quickly. Thank you. I saw that one coming, yes. Um, there was another hand over there. Yes, please. Hello, my name is Adrian. I'm coming from Romania. You've mentioned a lot of times we, we, we have to do this, we have to do this. Can you explain to us who's we? Like, what do you mean by this we? And you've also mentioned um, that Ukraine needs to go toward um, economical change, towards adopting the Western model as a former uh, uh, communist republic. Romania has failed in adopting the Western model, so has his neighbors. Bulgaria as well. I have an uncle who has worked, he's Swedish, who has worked for uh, at least 10 years for the European uh, Parliament, and his honest opinion is that uh, Sweden will be better off EU. So I guess my question is, uh, how does this, uh, how are the interests of common people represented by European Union, and uh, why is European Union entitled to act, to change uh, Ukraine's policy or uh, to change the way common people live in there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, just a moment. Um, we, we've heard the word Brexit. I've, I think I'd better bring our resident uh, British diplomat, Robert Coupe, in. Um, the microphone is coming. Uh, well, I was not going to ask about that. I, I was going to say that I'm in favor of clarity. Uh, though it's not always possible in diplomacy. Um, but it does seem to me that there are some fundamental unclarities about the Minsk Agreement. One of them is that uh, Russia presents itself in the Minsk framework uh, as being a mediator, uh, whereas to some of us it looks as though Russia is a party to the conflict. And a clarity like that, an unclarity like that, really goes to the heart of the, of the question. Okay, thank you. Should we take these three and then try yes. another round? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
the the EAAS. Um, I I think you're absolutely right to summarize. I mean, we could spend hours discussing about this. Is that there is a main difference with a national diplomatic uh, corps or diplomatic service uh, because uh, you have, um, well, each country has its own way of doing things, uh, but it's mostly about. Uh, one one government uh, clear interest and uh, moving ahead with that uh, and therefore being able to express uh, geopolitical interest and to try to uh, define a geopolitical approach whereas uh, our system at the European level is much more complicated. You're having several actors, uh, member states on one side inside the council, the commission on the other side and the whole purpose of the ES was precisely to bridge the gap between these uh, these two. Uh, is the ES succeeding? To some extent, it has started to do that, but it's really a, an ongoing process and, and, and working in progress, and it will take many years, because you're really dealing with two different types of uh, foreign policy culture. Um, and precisely, you can see that every day in the work of the ES, that um, when you have, uh, uh, to put it in, in, in very graphic terms, because I, I noticed that during all the time I was there, you can immediately detect if the paper that you get on your table has been written by a former commission official working for the ES, or whether it is a national diplomat. They have a totally different way of looking at the same issue. Uh, and uh, this is something that doesn't happen in, uh, in, uh, in a national diplomatic service. Personally, if you allow me, I think it's a good thing. It it gives you a more comprehensive approach, and if we manage to do the right um, uh, merging process between these two cultures, at the end of the day, it could make a a rather efficient and rather interesting uh, EU foreign policy. But we're not there yet, and uh, I think I gave several examples of of those shortcomings at the moment. Brexit for foreign affairs, I, I think I'm, I can be very um, very open about this. I think it would be a terrible loss uh, for, for European uh, foreign policy if our colleagues from the, um, for the Foreign Office um, and more generally uh, the British perspective about foreign policy uh, was not there anymore. I mean, it's a, it's an, a, a very valuable asset. And by the way, it seems to me that even on the British side, um, there is a sort of general recognition uh, that Britain has um, uh, fared rather well on foreign policy in Europe, and that uh, when they want and when they are not totally, um, um, I would say, uh, uh, obsessed by Brexit, um, which means that we don't hear them very much for the moment on the uh, European foreign policy side, uh, when I hope they will be back, uh, we will see uh, all the uh, importance of that um, uh, contribution from, from, from Britain. We, um, when you asked the question, we, I think it was, I was talking about Europeans in general. Um, um, so I apologize, I should have been uh, more, um, more precise, but that was a way of showing that when I criticize Europe, I put myself into this. I'm part of the problem. I hope I'll be part of the solution someday, but I'm retired. Don't forget about this. Um, We're not entitled to act in in Ukraine. Uh, We're doing this because we've been asked by the government to come in and to support them. You know, whatever you may think about Ukraine and the Maidan revolution, at the end of the day, there were elections, there was a president elected, there was a government elected, there is a coalition, and these people have very bluntly come to, uh, to Europe and have asked for our support. We wouldn't go on our own and force upon them um, any, you know, the association agreement, which is to some extent the embodiment of all our cooperation with uh, with Ukraine, is something that was negotiated in, in, f- in good faith by both sides. And if the Ukrainians didn't like this, uh, they could say so. Um, uh, so it's not trying to impose upon them our model of um, of, uh, of a free of free market. It's we think what the government wants also. 
Now you may find uh, ways of uh, dealing with uh, the transformation of the Ukrainian economy in a way that fits with their own interest. And I think maybe we should be more flexible, coming back to the previous question about how to be um, more efficient on the operational level. But it's really about doing this. And by the way, what I hear from many of the Ukrainians I've been talking to, um, one of their main complaints against European experts that come to Ukraine is that precisely they don't speak strongly enough about what they think should be the right way to proceed, that they are very much neutral and don't want to take sides and don't want to come up with their own idea about how to push forward this modernization. It's not people complaining that Europe is too much present. It's more Europe not being enough vocal in its proposal, in its advice, and in the way to, to move forward. Lastly, on one Robert, Robert, as the question put forward by Robert, that I'm very happy to salute, um, your I would agree with you uh, that, of course, Russia has tried to play this role of not being part of, uh, of the conflict, but being on the side. At the same time, you know, there is no doubt, and even Putin recognized this when he has his regular phone conversation with uh, Angela Merkel and Hollande, is that he has to deliver something. This is not a case where he just stays aside and just watches. Several times he has been asked to deliver, hasn't maybe delivered as much as we liked, but I think that in spite of the, uh, the narrative that they're putting uh, publicly uh, on this, uh, they still have taken some commitment and know that they have to fulfill them. Uh, and I think nobody doubts much about this. And the many meetings they have at the ministerial level or the heads of state level shows that uh, they understand that they have to take their part of, um, of the, um, of the um, implementation of that Minsk agreement. We have very little time left. I need to draw this to a close. I can take two very quick questions. The gentleman here was very patient. Yes, please, go ahead. Okay. Very short question, please. Okay. Thank you very much for your speak. Um, first, before we, I have two questions. Before I answer your question, have you asked Russian what really they want and are really consider themselves as a European? If we solve that question, I think all the problem will be solved. Second is regarding UK geopolitics. Um, if you look to the triangle of like uh, terror and or other world is security and what's happened today, unfortunately in Brussels before in Paris, other side of triangle which is uh, the finance stability, which all we heard about the news yesterday, how much UK going to lose if they quit. So other side which is uh, in June uh, European referendum. So if you are wearing UK shoes. Are going to vote which one you want to go security or finance stability okay thank you uh, very thank quick you. question Davi no okay then then there's gentleman in blue shirt and then I'll have to thank you um, I was just listening to your talk and it was very informative however I did notice quite an absence of the talk of NATO and no mention of NATO perhaps taking over European foreign policy and it being the de facto control of all hard power as opposed to Europe being our force and our organisation for soft power. So I just wonder what your comments were on that, looking that NATO is obviously dominated by European nations as well as overwhelmingly by the United States. Okay, thank you. Very briefly on, on your first question about security and, and finance stability, I... I I tend to think that the whole issue of security, uh, certainly inside Europe, and we have witnessed that again today, but also outside of Europe. Uh, you know, when you discuss, and when I, I was asked to uh, work on the uh, preparation of the Valletta summit, which was mostly a summit between Europeans and African countries, on the issue of migration, the one and single issue that came out all the time from our African partners was about security. And how can you help us in improving our security? Namely, um, you know, Sahel, uh, uh, North Nigeria, um, uh, the Gulf of Guinea, um, North Africa, of course, and all those crises you've heard about. This is becoming the main concern of all these countries. And 
because of the strong links they have with Europe for many years, uh, the discussion is not as much as on, on trade concession or development assistance. It's more and more about security because this is the, the real political issue today. And I think there we have a major responsibility to live up to their expectation, which brings me to NATO precisely. I didn't want to discuss NATO too much because um, uh, we don't have enough time and I could spend hours on this one. But what I, I detect more and more is um, uh, the, um, the, 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 the closer links between NATO and the European Union not only on an everyday basis, uh, because uh, there is certainly an, an improvement in our cooperation, but precisely because of what I was saying previously. Now, on every issue, the security dimension becomes more and more obvious. And precisely because of the um, concern of those African countries or North African countries who are asking for support in their whole issue of security capacities, where Europe will not be able to work on its own without some support maybe from NATO. Look about the migration issue, where now we have a NATO maritime operation taking its part in the agency on, on this whole thing of uh, how to um, cope with the uh, migrants moving from Turkey into Greece. These are extraordinary uh, evolution that one could not have expected a few years ago. Now you have um, cooperation uh, between NATO and Frontex, uh, one of the European agencies, with intelligence sharing, information being driven to this. Three years ago, either Greece, Cyprus or um, Turkey would have uh, prevented that from happening because they usually started immediately by saying that this was not acceptable. Nobody is... Um, talking any any more about this and therefore the the slow uh, process of closer relationship between the two is going to be very interesting to watch how will this come out what kind of division of labor will we witness in the future between nato and the european union i think um, i think this is going to be very interesting and at least here maybe one ray or one glimmer of hope and optimism there for the future Okay, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I have to bring this to a close. Um, Ambassador Vimo is working to a very tight schedule, and, and I, I can see people are already getting ready to take him to the airport. But we are immensely grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule here in London to speak to us, to give us your insights into the European dilemmas that we face with regard to Ukraine, Russia, and beyond. Thank you, and please join me in thanking Ambassador Vimo. <laughs>